here is the thought for the day, which I wrote down as my train was at Gatwick Airport this morning, sitting on the station for a little while, and um, it is this. You have some vital role to fulfill in the unfolding history of the world. What will it be? That was the poster that I looked out on. You have some vital role to fulfill in the unfolding history of the world. What will it be? Uh, the advertisement is for Jordan Peterson's book, which may not surprise you. And uh, clearly, it's a marketing ploy that uh, all of us sitting there um, in the train waiting to go are thinking, I really want to make some significant contribution uh, to the unfolding history of the world. Now, I think that's not a bad thing for a Christian. You have some vital role to fulfill. What will it be? God has a place for all of us and a plan for all of us. So let me begin by saying, how would you like your life to be defined? How would you like it to be um, assessed or valued? If you think about the culture in which we live, there are so many answers to that, aren't there? He made a lot of money. She made a lot of people happy. He built a dazzling reputation. She seized her opportunities. She was greatly loved and admired. She won the world's applause. He was a model husband and father. She was a model wife and mother. But I want to suggest to you that there's no summary statement of life in 2019 and as many days as God gives us on this earth that could be more significant and effective and valuable than this. He, she, lived in Christ. He, she, lived in Christ. Just look across the page at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, which I think is the theme tune of this wonderful letter. Let's just read them. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, many scholars suggest that this is the theme statement, the central core, if you like, of this letter to the Colossians. And so, what I want to do today, and it will follow on tomorrow at church, is to open up for us the major teaching of the book, which I think we will find really helpful in our contemporary context. And I want to take verses 6 and 7 and divide them into their four constituent ingredients and then use each of those ingredients uh, sequentially as a talk which will unlock the, uh, the whole book and the treasures of Paul's teaching um, to this church. It was a church that he'd never visited. It was a church for which he was very thankful. It was planted from his time in Ephesus, but he hadn't been the planter. But by the time he writes the letter, it's a church under very pressing concerns and needs. And so the verses call his readers, call us as his 21st century readers, back to what I have described as this title, the normal Christian life. Let's just look at the four interlocking ingredients. Firstly, in verse 6, live your lives, or basically continue to live your lives in him. And we'll look at chapters 1, 13, uh, sorry, 15 to 23 under that heading. Then the second ingredient is um, there in uh, verse 6, 
uh, seven rather, rooted and built up in him. And in our second session, we'll go on from 124 to 2.5 to look at that. And then the third ingredient is there in that same verse, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, which will take us into this section, 2.6 to 23. And then finally, tomorrow, the last of the four ingredients, and overflowing with thankfulness, which I think is a real uh, trigger to chapter 3 and the first 17 verses. Now, obviously, in short space like this, we can only get a bird's eye view of the letter, but I hope it will focus us, encourage us, help and build us up as we seek to be disciples of the Lord Jesus in our um, situation. Now, we've got three main points then. Paul's great concern for the church, just before we launch into the first one, is well expressed in those verses across the page right at the start, 1, 9, and 10, where he tells us that he's not just writing a letter, but he's constantly praying for this congregation. Verse 9 of chapter 1, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So what did he pray? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Well, there's a whole sermon series there, isn't there? But these verses are shaping up what he's doing through the letter, what he's praying, and the letter is supporting those prayers and taking them on further in terms of his own instruction and teaching. To know God's will, to be given the Spirit's wisdom, to live worthily of the Lord, to please him, to be fruitful, to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And those are the themes that we'll see being developed as we look at these three passages together today. So let's pick it up then with uh, number one in the notes there, life's greatest necessity. And uh, of course that is our theme from chapter 2 verse 6, that we continue to live our lives in him. Now the verb that's translated live is actually literally the verb walk. And uh, the NIV loves to translate the verb walk as live, and that's okay, but I think we need to remind ourselves that a walk is a step at a time progress in a definite and purposeful direction. And therefore, when he says, continue to walk in Christ, he's got that idea in mind. It's not just exist in Christ, but be making progress towards the direction that Christ has for you. So a walk like that involves a mental decision to start it. You don't go on a walk accidentally, really. You have to get yourself up and go. And it requires personal energy to do it. So I think it's a very suitable metaphor for the normal Christian life. Of course, it's one of the favorite metaphors that Paul uses. But it's very interesting how he expresses it. If we go back to 2.6 for a moment, continue to walk in Christ. Isn't it interesting that he didn't write to walk with Christ, but in Christ, walking in Christ. And perhaps that sounds really rather odd when we stop and think about it. After all, how can you walk in a person? 
Uh, I have four grandchildren, and not many years ago now, they were quite little children, and they loved to walk in puddles or to walk in mud. So their parents put them in welly boots, but they didn't say to them, walk in mummy and daddy. They said to them, walk with me in the mud and the puddles, but don't expect to walk in me. So what is this all about? Well, I think it's a little bit like that illustration of the welly boots. If the little child is put into the welly boots, then every step they take, they are in the welly boots, and the welly boots hopefully are, anyway, theoretically, dealing with the mud. Now, every step that you take if you are in Christ is like being in those welly boots. And the greatest necessity of our Christian life is that every day, this is characteristic of us. It's the greatest necessity if our Christian lives are to be normal. And let's face it, sometimes they're subnormal. And they ought to be much more like Jesus than they are. But it's no good beating ourselves up and saying, well, I'm going to try and be a better Christian. We've got to try and work out from this letter how we can make that progress. But let's begin there, that every step you take in Christ Jesus the Lord, that's what it says, continue to live your lives in him just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Keep on walking in him. And that unity with Christ means that your life is in Christ. That involves what you believe. It involves how you behave. It integrates faith and praxis. And all our resources of love and power and hope and holiness and wisdom and godliness, they are all derived directly from Christ Jesus the Lord. So as we take each step forward by faith day by day, we experience the life of God in the souls of men and women like us. And that is the supernatural quality of the normal Christian life. Now, one of the reasons why I'm concerned about this is because I've talked to quite a lot of young Christians recently who seem not to have realized that this is what it's all about. And many older Christians who've forgotten if they ever knew. What has happened in their lives? Chapter two, verse six. What's happened in your life if you're a Christian? You received Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what made you a believer, a Christian. You recognize that Jesus is God's king. He's Christ. He's the long-promised Messiah. He's the ruler of God's world. And you received the Christ as Jesus, the Savior, the rescuer, and you found forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. This is the firmness of your faith that Paul's talking about in chapter 2, verse 5, just before our main verse, when he says, I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. But they don't seem to have made the connection, verse 6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. They haven't seen the way on is the same as the way in. That living the Christian life is like becoming a Christian receiving Christ Jesus, and as you have received him, now walking in him. 
See, the guys I've talked to say things like this to me. Well, I know that Jesus is God's king, and I know that by his grace I'm accepted and forgiven by him, and I've, I know that I, I, I have to hold on till I get to heaven, and I trust I'll make it in the end and that I'll finish well, but what is there in between? Seems as though he's sort of left me now to do the best that I can, and I hope it'll be good enough, but I'm not really doing very well at the moment. Now, I think that was the big danger for the Colossians, and I think it's our big danger too, that Christians fail to recognize all that is already ours in the faith, and that we have accepted and expressed our confidence in Jesus at the time when we were born again and we came into living relationship with him. But that's now got to be translated into an appropriate, distinctively different lifestyle. And if we don't grasp this union with Christ, then we shall be impoverished in trying to live our Christian lives. And we should be looking in all the wrong places for the ability to live Christianly in a godless world. That's what they were doing in Colossian, in Colossae. They're all looking in all sorts of places for the extras to make them better Christians. So this is something that we need to think about. And I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about this idea of union with Christ. What does it really mean? What does it signify? Because it's used all the way through the New Testament to describe our relationship with Jesus. And it's in Jesus, of course, that we receive all the benefits of salvation. The change that the Holy Spirit produces in our character and in our actions when we become Christians are all because we are united to Christ in faith. And he comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit to live within each of us as his people. So, for example, later in the letter, we read that we died with Christ. Our old self-centered, sinful way of life was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. That's how we know that we have forgiveness. But we are also raised with him because he himself triumphed over all the hostile powers in his death and resurrection. And he now shares his powerful life with us. He lives within us by his spirit. So every spiritual blessing is in Christ. And when we're united to him by faith, and faith is the key, trusting him, believing him, committing ourselves to him, then his power and grace become available to us. We are in Christ so that all our individual actions are generated by his divine power, and together as individual Christians who are one body, we are the church in Christ. So there's an individual aspect and there's a corporate aspect of this. And what he's saying in 2.6 is now stay put in Christ, continue to walk in Christ. Do you remember how Jesus used the analogy of the branches in the vine in John 15? said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay put in me, abide in me. And as we stay put in Christ, as we go on trusting him, go on believing him, go on seeking to serve him day by day, then the corollary of that is that Christ is in us. So Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So there is a real personal 
indwelling of Jesus in you as a believer. It's not just that you accept his teaching, but that he himself is in you and the source of all your spiritual growth. Not I, but Christ. Now that has two effects, doesn't it? Firstly, it gives us a deep dependence on him. Without him, we can do nothing. But it also gives us enormous confidence. If we are in him and he is in us, then the very power of the universe is at work in us. There's a simple illustration that I've used many times, but I can't think of a better one. When you get on a plane to go somewhere, there's always a moment, isn't there, as you get to the end of the uh, gateway and you step onto the plane when, well, I always think, mm, I'm committing myself to this lump of metal now. And, uh, you know, that's just a moment. You get used to it, but there's a moment. And, of course, what happens is that when you get into the plane and you take your seat, then the plane carries you from A to B. And you arrive at B and somebody says, oh, how did you get here? And you say, I flew. Well, the plane flew. Uh, you know, you were in the plane, and because of the power of those jet engines and all the science behind it, the plane takes off, and as you are in that little metal capsule, you're transported across the world from A to B. Now, you don't do anything, really, except you exercise faith by getting on the plane, and you remain in the plane. I mean, if you decided, well, this flying's quite easy, really, let's see if we can open one of the doors and have a go at it. You know, I mean, quite literally, you would be restrained by the staff, and they don't want any abusive behavior from you, as they continually tell us. So we don't want to uh, be thinking that we've got to take over and fly. We don't want to be thinking that we are the people who have the energy and ability to be able to live a Christian life unless... It is Jesus living his life in us. Now, you may say, well, doesn't that mean then that I have no um, real personality, that I'm not responsible for myself? No, it doesn't mean that, and we'll explain that a little bit later on. But what it does mean is that if we remain in Christ, as we act like Christ through his power, we become like Christ in our character. There's that fantastic verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite verses, that we are being changed into his likeness. As we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus, we are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And one day, we shall be fully conformed to the image of God's Son. So that's what God is doing in us. He's making you a unique individual manifestation of Jesus, his son. It's not making you Jesus. Another favorite verse of mine is John 1, 21, where John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. And that's a really important verse to remember. I am not the Christ, neither are you. But we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And just as the three persons of the Trinity are exactly like one another in character, but remain distinct, so we are each distinctive. You don't have to be like anybody else. You don't have to try to make anybody else like you. You are in Christ. And in fact, the more like Christ you become, the more truly you will become your real self as God intended it. And that's the great blessing of the Christian life. 
Now, the ultimate destiny is that the fulfillment of all this with Christ, united to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the eternal uh, end point to which God is working. And heaven will be the fulfillment of the in-Christ relationship without any of the hindrances and barriers and inadequacies of our experience as fallen people in a fallen world. So friends, every day matters. Continue to walk in Christ. That is life's greatest necessity. Now you'll be highly relieved to know that we've reached one subsection one and we're halfway through the talk. So don't despair. What he is talking about now is the past lifestyle, the present change, and the future prospects. Let's go back to the end of our reading in uh, chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Because, you see, the Colossians are looking for this extra wonder ingredient that's going to make them better Christians. Some new rules or regulations to keep, or some exciting new spiritual experience that's going to lift them to new heights. There's plenty of that around, isn't there? People promising things like that. And Paul's concern is that there are some huge dangers awaiting them. Look back to the verse at which our reading ended, 123. If you continue in your faith, there's that note again, established and firm, not moving away from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, that is, it's available to every human being, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Continue in your faith. Back to verse 21, what does that mean? Well, once you were alienated from God. There's the past. You were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. That was their lifestyle. That past is now finished. Christ has covered it. Every past sin forgiven through his blood. Now, present, verse 22, he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So when you received Christ Jesus as Lord, you were reconciled to God through the cross and that secured your future destiny. That you will be without blemish and free from accusation uh, acceptable to God 100% and assured of fellowship with him forever. So there is the future prospect that we will one day transcend all the limitations of our sinful nature and be changed into the likeness of Christ. So what's the problem? Verse 23, if. There's the problem. If you continue in your faith. And I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's expressing this danger very vividly that they might not continue in the faith. He wants them to be stable. He wants them to be safely seated and reliably secure in Christ. But his fear is that they may be thrown out of the saddle by some new teaching or by the sheer demands and challenges of living a Christian life in a sinful world. Or, or they may just move from one place to another like shifting sands and uh, the, 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 the power of the tide will just drift them out to sea. The danger is the danger of drift. People who don't get anywhere in their Christian lives don't usually set out to do that. Uh, some people who may totally turn their back on Christ who we thought were once disciples. But most of the casualties are drift casualties. 
because they don't continue. They don't make this the necessity of life to keep walking in Christ. And you meet people who say to you, well, I really value the Bible teaching I received as a new Christian, of course, but somehow it didn't sort of connect to my life at work or at home. And Well, I've broadened out now to a more sort of um, livable, relaxed, balanced version of my Christian faith. I was um, not very comfortable with all that stuff about heaven and hell and Jesus being the only way. And now I've sort of settled down to um, recognize that, well, it's all about love really and hopefully God is going to be kind and gracious to everyone. And the evangelicals that I used to mix with were far too black and white about these things. The danger of drift. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Why? Well, now, number two, because of Christ's total supremacy. This is a most wonderful passage, verses 15 to 20. We are very likely to focus on the receiving and the walking in verse 6 of chapter 2 because the focus is on us and we are prone to like it when the focus is on us and to overlook the context of the verse in those words, Christ Jesus the Lord. Back to 2.6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, that's his full name, his full title, keep on walking in him. Now, he says that in 2.6 because in 1.15 to 20, he's shown us who Christ is. And we read that because unless we have this understanding of who Jesus is, we're unlikely to continue in the faith. We're unlikely to be stable and steadfast and firm. If Paul is convinced that everything we need for the normal Christian life is ours in Christ, then we need to be fully convinced of who this Christ is and of his total supremacy. And these verses teach us that. This is the Christ whom we have received Fasten your seatbelt. It's an amazing thought, this. This is the Christ whom you have received, who is in you, and you are in him as a believer. Now, I wonder if you've noted a repeated description of Jesus, which actually takes us to the heart of this wonderful paragraph. It's there in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And it's there again in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead. And the repetition, firstborn, divides the paragraph into two. So verses 15 to 17 expound Christ's lordship over every created entity. And verses 18 to 20 focus on the lordship of Jesus over the church, which is the first fruit of the new creation, the beginning in time of God's eternal kingdom. And in both spheres, Jesus is the firstborn. Now, we, if we ever use the term, we use it in terms of time, don't we? We say the oldest child in a family is the firstborn. But verse 15 cannot mean that Jesus is a created being, the first in a very long line of creatures. He's not the firstborn in that sense. The context clearly uh, denies that because verse 15 says he is the image, literally the icon, the visible representation of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God because he is God. 
And if you looked at Jesus during his earthly ministry, you were looking at God in human form. So if this is God from everlasting to everlasting, then the Son of God must be eternally God's image. He can't belong to a moment of time and space history because there was never a time when he was not. And there is never a time when he is not fully God. Bethlehem was only the beginning of his earthly ministry. It wasn't the beginning of Jesus. So when the word became flesh, it was as the one who has precedence over all creation. Verse 16 makes that abundantly clear, doesn't it? In him all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, that means there's total, there's nowhere else. Visible and invisible, again total. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all the total power vocabulary of the New Testament, all things have been created through him and for him. That's amazingly inclusive, isn't it? Everything exists by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And this is who you are in, and he is in you. It's mind-blowing. This is the supernatural miracle of the gospel. This is the Christ you've received. This is the one you're to walk in. He's the author of creation. He's the means of that creation. He's the purpose of that creation. He brought it all into being, verse 17. He's before all things, and he holds it all together by his sovereign will. So that the sun rose this morning, not because of some inexorable law of nature, but because Christ, in whom we live our lives, willed it. He is the unique and only representation in time and space history of God the Invisible. And so he is the connection between God and his creation. Well, that's wonderful. And that's, of course, why in the Gospels we see him performing so many creation miracles, turning the water into wine, stilling the storm, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, miracles of creation that point to the new creation. So verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. And this same Lord who ruled before time began and who shaped creation in the beginning, he's the one now who has retrieved that creation for its intended end and purpose. He's the one who will rule forever and ever when time shall be no more. That is total sovereignty. And it is awesome. That's why Jesus is Alpha and Omega. That's why he's the beginning and the end. That's why alongside the whole created order, now he produces his body, the church. He is our firstborn, the first of all his people to be raised from the dead, having overcome all those hostile powers, the world, the flesh, the devil, hell itself. So he exercises his sovereign authority over the whole of the future. And his resurrection is the assurance of ours. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
So the new creation is a reconciled, renewed creation. That's what the church is. It exists through Jesus, by Jesus, and the blood of his cross, and for Jesus. He's the head of the body. And so in one sense, verse 19 is so obvious, isn't it? That, th that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And yet it's so frequently overlooked and ignored that the very godness of God finds its permanent address, its eternal residence in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is whom you've received, the Christ of total supremacy. There couldn't possibly be anything greater to experience than fellowship with him. So friends, when you're tempted to look elsewhere, to look for the extras to add to Jesus, realize that what you're doing is subtracting from Jesus. You're saying he's not enough. That's a dreadful thing to say. He is the head over all things. He's the Lord of creation. He's the creator of the church. And just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, this cosmic Christ, who rules the creation and the new creation. He's the one in whom we're to be taking every step forward day by day. So let me close in the last five minutes with a very brief practical point to take you back to verse 19, our daily sufficiency. Let's look at it again. It's a great verse. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. So how could there possibly be anyone more than Christ Jesus the Lord? Anyone more powerful, anyone more gracious, anyone more loving, anyone more God than Jesus? All his fullness. It's a word that's used about the complement of a ship's crew. When you've got everybody on board, then you have the fullness of the crew. So the idea of fullness is the completion. All that God is, he is to us through our faith union with Jesus. And all that we know of God through Jesus' life and ministry, through his death and resurrection, all that is the faith that we've received and in which we are to live. So our perspective on God's work and our responsibility is that we respond to that in faith. And through the cross, Jesus will be ultimately uh, restoring us to that renewed oneness and wholeness. The church is a community, his body, and every individual believer. That is what he's doing. That's what he's building. That's what his purpose is in time, however imperfectly and inadequately we may show it. But the more we walk in him, the more the church becomes what he intends us to be. As Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. He didn't say we'll receive eternal life beyond the grave. He said you're already eternally alive. Do you remember John 5, 24, that we have passed from death to life. And we exist now in a realm where death has ceased to count. Of course, death will be an experience that we go through if the Lord doesn't return first. But that will not destroy the life that we have. As one of the Easter hymns says, Jesus lives, henceforth is death, but the gate to life immortal. Life of a new quality that we begin to experience now.
a superhuman divine quality, the very life of God himself. We have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, and all the fullness is in him. We've received it. You can't buy it. You can't acquire it. You can't earn it. You can't produce it. But every step you take day by day, walking in Christ, trusting him, believing him, seeking to walk according to his will, asking for his strength, drawing on his resources, trusting the plane to carry you from A, B, A to B. Every time we do that, we are connecting with something that is of eternal value, with God's great purposes for his world. You have some vital role to fulfill in the unfolding history of the world. What will it be to grow like Jesus? There's nothing more important. And this opening uh, section of the letter shows us that everything is there in Christ so that all we do can have eternal value. If... Uh, I can remember when my son was a bit younger, he was given some electric toy to work and he got rather frustrated with it because he couldn't get it to work and uh, he didn't have much confidence in me because I'm hopeless at things like that. But on this one occasion, I did get it right. And I said to him, um, have you switched it on? Uh, no, well, he hadn't actually. So <coughs> that's what I want to end with. Are you switched on to this? It's all very well to make notes and write it down. That's great. I hope you have. Or keep it in your mind. But... Are you switched on? It's this connection. Now, there's huge power in the national grid, but it's not yours unless you're plugged in. So keep on trusting, continue. Walk in the wellies, no. Walk in Jesus, in Christ, and every step you take will make you more like him. Let's pray. Let's just spend a moment or two in quietness and we can think maybe just one thing the Lord's laid on your mind or heart and just turn it into prayer. Ask him to enable you to receive it and to continue to walk in him. Lord, we are amazed at the wonders of your grace. When we think of what we were before you found us, and when we look at our hearts and see how even now they are so fickle and wayward and so divided, Lord, we are amazed that you go on bothering with people like us, but that is the greatest miracle in the universe because you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will enable us to reveal our gratitude, our response of faith by continuing to walk in Christ, Christ Jesus as Lord. Forgive us when we don't trust you as Jesus the Savior and think somehow that maybe our sins are not forgiven and we've got to do all the work. Forgive us when we don't trust you as Christ the King and begin to take the authority back into our own hands. Forgive us when we don't trust you as the Lord and imagine that the future is somehow in somebody else's hands and not in yours. Lord, we are so fickle and so wayward, but we pray that over this day and 
as we look at this letter, you will deepen our trust in you, that we may know that in Christ we find the resource that is necessary to live a life that pleases you, glorifies you now, and will be finally consummated in that eternal kingdom. So please help us to that end. Write your word in our minds and on our hearts and enable us to put it into effect by our wills. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.